Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. My guest today is Kevin McCaffrey. Kevin is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of North Texas. He's written three books and edits the journals Theoretical Sociology and Evolutionary Analysis in the Social Sciences. He's also one of the chief researchers at the Skeptic Research Center. His work covers a wide range of topics, including cultural evolution, criminology, secularization, and most recently, suicide. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. The reason that I'm talking to you today is because I stumbled across uh, a new paper you put up on Soch Archive, and the title is Pulling Back the Curtain on Suicide Research. Understanding why people die by suicide is a harder problem to solve than most social scientists admit. When I found this paper, I thought, oh, here, this looks like an interesting, you know, paper on, on suicide, but even though it's it's not too long, it's got quite a lot of intellectual heft to it. It really gets into sort of not just the problems in helping people with suicide or studying it, but, you know, how people who've been researching it and funding projects around it have really been, you know, misleading the public on what's going on. To take a step back, though, my first question for you is, since you're a sociologist, you publish on so many other unrelated topics, why did you decide to write something on suicide? Because I've gotten more and more interested in how corrupt academia is in general and social sciences in particular, and suicide is a great test case because there's some perverse incentives here. Uh, it's a topic that everybody cares about. It's, it's a very like intrinsically meaningful topic to us, people deciding to exit early from something we otherwise value life. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, here's a perverse incentive. I mean, the incentive for sociologists is to pretend like they understand how this works. This is our game, right? Sociality and the exiting of it and the leaving of it. So there's grant money to be made if you pretend to have answers or if you pretend to have a plan to pursue those answers. And I say pretend because it's not news, really. I mean, it was to me, but for about 20 years at least, there have been so-called suicidologists because it's now a whole little cottage industry, um, who are honest about the situation. And if you, you can, they actually, you know, they produce their charts and you can see that across all these different interventions, the, the impact is within the range of zero. It, these things are doing literally nothing that we can pick up. Um, and so I just felt like, you know, it's such a topic that, that sociologists want to claim influence on. There's so much, in my opinion, there's a lot of like sentiment and money to be made there in different ways, whether it's through incomes or grants, and, um, and it's a house built on cards. Now, you say suicidologist, which is an interesting term. So who exactly are suicidologists? What, what qualifies someone to be a suicidologist versus being a sociologist or a psychiatrist? Really, it's a disqualification, in my opinion, because it's people who are highly specialized to, to claim to understand the concept of suicide in itself, how it works, why it happens sociologically. Um, and, and it's a way of like cutting out the rest of human behavior as though suicide is the most, and you know, it seems like this to us, maybe initially the most wild, unusual, inexplicable type of human behavior as though it's unconnected to the other range of human behaviors. And so they specialize, it makes it easier to get money basically. Um, but I think it's a disqualification because it, it causes us to look at suicide as a, as a, as a, as a total aberration of human behavior. And I don't think that's uh, the way forward. The way forward is to see the full range of human behavior in all of its gradations and its relatedness. Um, you know, but it's harder to get a job if you do that. You say, they say, well, what do you study? I say, oh, I study suicide. Okay, I put you in the box. You're, you're the suicidologist. As opposed to what do you study? I study similarities between different types of human behavior. They still don't know what you study. So, you know, there's, again, perverse incentives in higher education to specialize and know nothing. Right. Let's take an even bigger step back. So what do we know about people who commit suicide versus those who don't, right? Because, I mean, one, one issue that comes up immediately when we think about studying people who commit suicide is, A, the ones who do it successfully we can no longer talk to, and B, even though it happens at a big scale, at a population level, it is actually still quite small, right? And so it's very hard to study a small group of people. It's even harder to predict outcomes about a group of people based on such small samples, right? Um, but setting that sort of aside, what do we know based on the research that exists about people who commit suicide? What kind, you know, what's, what gender, class, all that stuff, um, what factors go into that? So men are more likely to complete suicides. So men are more likely to die by suicide. And this is because they use more lethal means 
Women are more likely to use indirect means, things that don't affect their head or face, or the ingestion of pills where your body can involuntarily get rid of them. Um, but here's what we know about suicide, really, in terms of preventing it, stopping it. Is, and it's not terribly profound. It's the kind of thing that I think everybody understands intuitively. If you can identify a person about to do it, and there's different what you just ask them bluntly, are you have you planned out doing this? And uh, and the person says yes, stop them. Get them keep them away from being alone. What we know about suicide is that it's often impulsive. People just they it, it, suicide notes are rare. They're romantic and they do provide some kind of insight into the person's last thoughts. But they're rare. Most, for most people, suicide is an impulsive act. And there's even a fascinating evolutionary phenomenon, psychological phenomenon, that many people have experienced where if you're driving on the road, let's say you're on a bridge or let's say you're near the edge of a mountain, you feel this impulse of, what if I turn the wheel? What if I just suddenly turn the wheel and I went over the cliff? This is actually a common experience that people report that are not suicidal at all. Um, it, it, there's a... I think there's a sense in which we're, many people are often dancing the line of taking things too far in a lot of ways, and self-harm is one of those things. And when a person has gone to a certain point of planning it out, we have to, you have to stop them, you have to prevent them, and they will later be grateful for this. Um, uh, so, but that's all we know. As for who is going to get to that point, we can say men are more likely to die by suicide, but almost no men die by suicide. We can say depressed people are more likely to die by suicide, but almost no depressed people commit suicide, and so on. So it becomes very hard. One thing that I've heard a lot, and I mean, I would almost even say at this point, I believe it, though I'm open to changing my mind, is that suicide is contagious. So if you, for example, um, see on TV that somebody is committing suicide, or there was, there was one study I looked at recently that it's an older sociology study. It found that in days where, um, say, the New York Times or another paper had a suicide on the front cover, there were more suicides, things like that. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, the idea is there's a social sort of contagion aspect to it. Do you think that that's, uh, that's held up in the literature or is that sort of, um, you know, a pop culture idea at this point? Well, there's a, there's a boring way to answer that and an interesting way. The boring way to answer it is that, uh, yes, suicide contagion is a thing, but it only occurs in highly integrated small groups. So we're talking about like private school group of kids who are really stressed about getting A's and going to the top colleges and one of them bombs a test and there's no way they're going with their friends to the top colleges. So now they're going to fail their family and their minds. They're, they failed their friends. They failed their own future. Okay, but that's a highly integrated group of kids that all have the same goal or adults. So those are relatively rare. So yes, uh, suicide contagion is a thing, but it's unusual. Um, the other way to look at this, though, the more interesting answer is to look at something like deaths of despair. So something like opiate overdose deaths or deaths due to fentanyl, drug overdose deaths. If we want to think about these as a form of suicide, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's an open discussion, you know, to talk about drug overdose as a, as a kind of suicide, especially as it kind of is the culmination of a long pattern of addiction for most people. Um, uh, you know, those have been rising pretty precipitously. Uh, at least over the last 10 years. That's interesting to think about. Um, if there's some sort of despair or malaise that can affect a nation. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you think of that answer, but that's how I, I think no, about it. No, it's a good answer because it's sort of you're saying, okay, there's one sort of critical area where we can say, yes, here it really, really is. And then more broadly, we can say uh, a culture of suicide or a culture of despair is a problem. Even if like in a, you know, in one individual instance, hiding, you know, uh, someone's suicide might not make or break a difference. I mean, I, I saw recently a, an article, I think it was um, in the New York Times. It was a woman basically saying, uh, you know, somebody I, I'm related to, I think it was either her husband or someone she loved had committed suicide. And she was quite proud about saying, we put this in the obituary, right? Like we're not trying to hide this, which I think has traditionally been what people do. If you have a loved one who commits suicide, you Try not to tell anybody except maybe immediate family. You definitely don't publicly announce it. Or you, um, I think there's sort of a a change in that where people are saying now, well, look, you know, mental health is a as bad as physical health, and a loved one dying because of a mental health condition is no different than a physical health condition. So, I mean, what do you think about that 
kind of culture of openness around suicide? Do you think that has a healthy side, but could it also potentially lead into legitimizing it? No, I'm not. I don't believe that there's uh, that's a re- that, 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 that that's a significant effect in social life. This legitimization thing that if we talk about something, it makes it real. Yeah, it's a very magical notion of incantation. I think absolutely a culture of openness, a culture of frankly, all you know, like maximal care. Although there are going to be downsides to this. There's going to be helicopter parenting. There's going to be people claiming victimization that isn't real to take advantage of the of the social environment. But yeah, I mean, the truth is, I think overall open maximal openness and and maximal honest rational efforts at care are the trajectory we've been on over the last several hundred years it's the trajectory we'll, we will continue on um yeah i don't think talking about it makes it more common that's interesting because I, I talk to a lot of people who i think are worried about or especially around many different mental health conditions right now something of social contagion effects where people uh you know might um come to identify with having a mental health condition, uh, you know, depression, anxiety or something, uh, or it just might be the kind of thing where, you know, if they had uh, experienced the mental health, you know, some mental health issues 50 years ago, they would have had a bad year and then got on, but now they're roped into medication, they're roped into therapy. Uh, I mean, I guess suicide doesn't have the same problem necessarily, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question how open people should be about those things. But I understand what you're saying. Social, especially social scientifically, those kinds of things are not making a difference. Well, we, 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 talking about it doesn't make it more common. We talk about it more because it is more common. That's why we're talking about it more. Now, okay, but I'm with you on this. What is more common is the claim of some sort of mental health ailment. Not necessarily its actual prevalence. I mean, it's really hard to track the difference between those two things. So I think, you know, but the answer to that is better clinicians. The way to treat mental health, and humans have known this at least as far back as Greeks, really has nothing to do with herbal essences and pharmaceutical pills and all the things. It has to do with how you're living your life, the habits that you have, the daily routine that you have, and the way this can make your life worse for better. You know, you know th- there's a guy named Jonathan Rottenberg, who's, a, who's an evolutionary psychologist and an experimental psychologist. And, and his argument is, Something like moderate depression or mild depression, not severe depression, which has to be addressed uh, seriously, but moderate and mild depression, what, what this is, is it's a signal your body's telling you that there's something about your habit and your routines, something about the people you're surrounding yourself with that are blocking one or more of your goals, whatever those goals might be. That's a signal your brain's telling you. So, so you know, do people feel more depressed uh, today? Maybe are the actual rates higher? Maybe. But regardless, the answer to either of these things are better clinicians, better trained clinicians. Um, putting a name to something and a, and, a, and a pharmaceutical solution to it is not an explanation. Well, you know, I actually like what you said there because it's, it's very positive, right? Which is to say, like, look, we have sort of made a misstep in terms of maybe how we're addressing some of these problems for people. But we actually have the answer. It's just a longer, you know, it's an older answer. But if we right? Change things up a bit, you know, we could do it better. And, and maybe, um, I think that also gets into a bit into what I was going to ask you about, which is the, the gendered aspect to some of these suicide treatments is, is very, very therapeutic and talkative in origin. And uh, maybe for men who are right, the most likely to actually go through with it, that is not always the best approach. But, uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. What I, what I wanted to ask you now about is, what kinds of approaches to suicide prevention or, you know, treatment have been funded? What are the popular ones? In your article, you talk about a few safe to tell DBT. Can you maybe talk a little bit about those and kind of just give us a general sense of uh, what their intention is? Yes. So the general intention, and they're all shared as far as I can tell across these intervention strategies. And that's the problem is that there's a, a very unitary way of looking at this, but they're all some form of the extension of care and support. So the, the, the overall view here is that the suicidal, potentially suicidal person has a sort of a deficit of a kind, and it's a deficit of love. And so if we just sit this person down and love on them, and we tell them how, how much we love them and how important they are, and, we, and this can be done in various ways of, of various levels of sophistication. So it could be as much as little as a hotline, where a person just calls in and talks to someone else and is like, you know, loves on them. Or it could be like a therapist who comes in and talks to you about how, how you're thinking about your friendships and your goals and so on. And in, in, in the mode of increasing their self-esteem and increasing their kind of positivity. Okay, so the, it's possible that there are human emotions and ailments that um, 
even if care ultimately is the answer, there's a certain degree of just a breaking up of routine or breaking up of habit or in the most visceral sense, like a heart rate. So, you know, you rarely see, for example, dance. And this might sound stupid to people. It might sound silly. Like, what are you talking about? They're not going to want to dance. They're depressed. Well, I don't know. I mean, that would be the point is like, how do we get these people? There's other ways to move your body. Um, music, dance, I, I, you know, sports are the obvious one, but, you know, get people to move around, introduce activity. Uh, see, I mean, there's, so anyway, to answer your question, the ones that are most funded are these, are these care and support avenues, therapies, uh, therapists, hotlines, uh, various interventions throughout the day to get people to be more mindful and positive. Um, you name it. Uh, but but it, it all has that focus, as far as I can tell. I, I personally find the the mindfulness sort of push over the last you know couple of years. Like on the one hand, I really don't. I have not seen any good evidence, you know, that it's a good intervention. Other than I'm sure, I'm sure there are some people who really enjoy doing nothing, <laughs> but it also seems like a really bad thing to give to people who are having suicidal thoughts or ideation. Like why would you why would you basically tell people, hey? You just sit for half an hour, like once a day and just do nothing and just try and, you know, still your thoughts or something, then you are going to feel better. It, 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 to me, it speaks to a total lack of understanding of what those people are probably going through. Okay. So let, let me, let me put a little bit of personal life experience on this as useless as that often is. I learned this when I went through a police academy when I was young. This is true also in the military and I, there's all kinds of problems with police and military. Okay. I, I, don't get me started on that, but one thing you'll notice is that a lot of the people in there are kind of depressed. They're either away from their family or they're embarking on something they're not sure about, or they've got other concerns like money worries or kid worries, and they got to put that aside in the academy. You know, every day you are running together and you're running together. Um, you know, you're marching, you're chanting, you're, you're exercising together. And I'll be damned if it doesn't make you feel better. And there's no rational, you're not talking about anything substantive. You're just moving with people purposely like you're going to a place together and it starts to get a little bit it gets tiring you know after a while so you're kind of you know you're all in something together and you feel better i don't see anything like that in suicide research and i'm not advocating to put suicidal people through boot camps or something like that but it's just the principle of of collective movement is uh, i don't see it and in the form of exercise and, and it doesn't have to be competitive well, collective, collective anything these days is, I wouldn't say it's harder, but I feel like people do it less because it's so much easier to do things on your own. Uh, you know, one example is like I make uh, music and I grew up, you know, from a very young age, I was using garage band and stuff. So you can make your own music. And, you know, nowadays you don't need to, you don't need to jam with your friends in the garage. If you want to make music, you can just buy, you know, a mic like I got over here and you got your laptop and you do it all yourself. I there's sort of a version of that across society where people are just more and more doing their own thing. And I think we really lose, you know, something and it's, you know, no wonder people often kind of feel like something's missing from their lives. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got these programs that people are, you know, putting out and getting funded. How are they evaluated? So you, you know, let's take something like uh, safe to tell, Maybe you can uh, briefly explain what, what that is and what they do specifically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what we need to do is take a large number of schools across the country, try to match them on like the size of the school, the size of the classroom, teacher turnover rate, do our best, run safe to tell in half of them, don't run safe to tell in the other half, do it for five or 10 years, see if there's any difference in the suicide outcomes. Okay, that, that's, yeah, it takes a while, but we've been at this for over 20 years at least. In a sophisticated way, in sociology, we've been at it for a hundred years. Um, you know, here's what they actually do: they get funding to institute safe to tell in in a school, for example. Um, and uh, you know, there are kids who are depressed, and they call in, and there are counselors who talk to those kids, and there are positive exchanges, there are neutral exchanges, there are kids who use it many times, there are kids who use it once, there are kids, and then after it's over. Uh, they interview the psychologists, the psychiatrists that were involved or the therapists that were involved, the people that were involved. They interview the kids, they interview the parents of the kids and, uh, they say, I worked, uh, people liked it, you know, it's so, it's like, okay. Uh, but so that's how it works. So, I mean, people tend, and they, they'll, they'll say things like, like metrics will be to the granting body will be, 
are people more at the school more interested in learning about suicide and the suicide and the risk of suicide? And the answer will be, yeah, people are more interested now because they've been a part of this program. But being more interested in understanding the concept of suicide, there's no evidence that that relates to reducing the incidence of actual suicides. So it, honestly, it feels rigged to me. I, I know that it's not that way. It's just that, you know, there's just no incentive to improve things, really. But it, it's just, it doesn't look like we're serious about understanding suicide. Well, it's, it sounds to me that the people who are, who are researching it or who are funding it, they have already from the beginning decided that, right, talking is the answer, basically, and loving is the answer. And so everything they do is just, you know, a consequence of that sort of uh, worldview. Uh, and when evaluating it, right, again, they're evaluating it based on the same thing. Did people say the right words? Did people feel the right feelings? Yeah, basically, yeah. Everybody should prefer that they evaluate it based on did it stop people from killing themselves, which seems to be like the only, you know, for most, for most studies, uh, social science studies, there's a million metrics you could, you know, look at and criticize. Well, what about this? What about this? Right. This one seems to be one where there's one that we should really care about. Everything else doesn't really matter. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. It's, you know, I think unfortunate that the people who are doing these studies, I mean, some of them you, you write about in the article have been sort of a bit more candid recently about what's going on. Right. And, and, uh, have called it, you know, a sham, which I think is seems fair to say. Briefly reading through some of them, I would say they do not seem that different than other social science research, but that just says, you know, a lot about the terrible quality of most social science research. Um, yeah. But yeah, I know it's, it's pretty terrible. I mean, you, you talk as well about sort of how the things that do work and the interventions that we know do work seem to be the sort of, really basic things, right? Like, well, why don't you block people from jumping off bridges? Um, has there been, you know, interest or, or study of that? And, or is it just not necessary even? No, I mean, if suicide is most often, not always, but most often seemingly an impulsive act that the person later, you know, once they've be, moved beyond that place in their life, they regard it as a kind of like a fugue. Like, what was, I don't know what I was thinking kind of thing. The, the point is, is that you just have to, nudge people away from it in that specific moment you know that's where the evidence is best you know i think we're we have a lot of hubris and i include myself in this for thinking that we can theorize and understand human intention and and human conceptualization of their life and why it should end that's a big hard question a much easier question is how high does this gate need to be to deter people from climbing over it and jumping to their death into the water below. It's a much simpler question. It's not nearly as sexy, but that the truth is that's where our science, that's where our research is the best in terms of actual decline in suicide rates. Actually, look at the rate and it goes down. Um, are these sorts of interventions? Uh, I, I see it almost as, um, in nowadays, te technology just advancing is, is subsuming this. So let's take something like electric vehicles. That's going to take a lot of the, the sort of the, the potential to have the impulse to turn that car into the tree um, because the car is just going to be driving for you. And I'm sure there will be new ways to, to end one's life in the future. But I think the more we increase the safety of our environment in general, the, the mechanization, the automization of our environment in general, take it away from irrational human apes, um, I think it will become safer overall. Which is why these deaths of despair are interesting, um, because I, you'd predict that suicides would be going down. People would be becoming more comfortable living longer lives. But there's obviously more than that going on. Yeah, I mean, so that's, you know, physical barriers is one thing you could do. I always am surprised that, you know, a lot of subway platforms, right, you can just easily jump onto the platform, whereas in many other countries, you know, they have a barrier. And when the subway comes, the doors open. You know, people kill themselves in the subway like all the time. It's extremely easy for them. It's terrible for everybody involved, especially the whoever was driving the car. And I just think all you know, all this money that we're putting into these talking programs, you could, you know, probably easily figure out how do you, you know, build some stuff that other countries have already done. In the U.S., at least, uh, for the most largely, uh, gun deaths are our major cause of suicide. And so that's the big problem for us is what do you do about that? You know, how do you put a safeguard on someone's personally owned firearm? Yeah, that's a tough one. A friend sent me some studies uh, from the Israeli Defense Force about uh, guns and suicide. And they, you know, have very young people, right, having access to guns. And they put in this new policy, which uh, was basically 
you don't have guns, you know, on the weekend, which is, uh, you know, during weekdays, you might need them for practice and training and stuff. And they also put, I think, mental health officers in every, I don't know, but I don't know the military term, but battalion, squadron. I'm I'm really showing I don't know anything about the military here. But uh, but yeah, and they found that it worked really, really well uh, for reducing suicides by gun death on the weekends when when they didn't have the guns, right? That was the big thing they found. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, politically, right, guns are a huge issue and they get into these other, like, there's so many conflicting interest groups and values and stuff around that, right? I mean, I, I know a lot of conservatives who are, they basically say like, well, look, we just make a trade-off with guns. Like we get guns, we get freedom. Yes, there's going to be school shooting. Yes, there's going to be suicide. But like, that is the price we pay for freedom. And I think that is that is one way to look at it. I don't necessarily know if it's the best way to look at it, but a lot of people seem to have sort of decided that, yeah, we're not letting anybody touch guns um, for those reasons. Yeah, I, I, you know, I I do think that it's also important not to overly, uh, people tend to moralize suicide a lot and they tend to see it as a bad act. Someone who, uh, very selfish and, you know, look who they're leaving behind and what they're leaving behind. And they took the easy way out. When a good friend of mine committed suicide, the the family, and I know they were going through hell, so, you know, who am I to sit here and judge them? But, uh, you know, they, they were angry at him for doing it. And I get that, you know, it's like people cutting out early, and now we got to shoulder the fucking bullshit of this life, you know. But but I don't know, that it's hard to call an act selfish when the individual is taking themselves. So I, I, I think, you know, I don't see it as a selfish act. I see it as a as a sad but but fascinating and interesting phenomenon of human behavior. And I try to keep it like that, not demoralize it, good or bad. Uh, and that can be hard. But I think that that's that's another thing I think implicitly behind all this, and I, I'm inferring this, is this view of suicide is not an interesting, not in a good way, but 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 macabre, interesting and and horrific behave human behavior, natural human behavior that we see in other animals, by the way. Um you know, it's very interesting that there's studies of learned helplessness on animals, like rats, and they'll stop trying to swim in the water. If you dump them in enough, they stop. They're like, I'm, I'm not, no more. Uh, suicide is a, is, a, is a natural phenomenon, as natural as a tree leaf. And there's something about, oh, we just got to love on them, and they need love. There's a deficit of love. Ah, it's so primitive, it's a way to think about it, you know. Not entirely wrong, but. I think I think the concern at maybe the societal level is if we start treating suicide like more morally neutrally, it makes us come to see suicide as a as a you know economically rational act in some sense, right? Where a person can basically evaluate their life and say, yeah, it makes sense for me, you know, in terms of the benefits of continuing to live versus you know the costs of not. Like it's it's it makes sense for me to to go now and. I think that people sort of can rationally make that decision, but like, I don't necessarily know if that's a good decision for them to make, even if it's rational. I mean, that might be a point where we have an interest societally in making people reconsider. But I think part of the, the, the worry about demoralizing it to some degree, even though, I mean, I fundamentally agree with you. I don't think, uh, I don't think for example, someone who commits suicide is doing something immoral or, you know, selfish or something like that. I think part of the, the worry is if we talk about it in more neutral terms, then it's going to um, make it seem like more of an, you know, a normal option for, for people. And I, I actually do think there are communities right now, you know, especially some of the, like, like here where I live, some of the indigenous communities, you know, they have terrible suicide rates and many sort of grow up being told, like, that's like an option, right? If it's, you're not going to have a good life. So think about it right and so i think that's part of the concern is if you demoralize it then you are going to end up with it be being a little too cold uh and emotionless uh of a possible decision to consider yeah yeah perhaps yeah so there's guns i i think there's been some interesting you know look at social programs potentially preventing suicide so uh i found one study that that found that uh i think in in states that did an uh expansion of snap benefits there was like a 7% decrease in suicide rates of that year, um, which I think is, you know, potentially a, another interesting thing to look at is, you know, because uh, I, I don't really buy the theory that, for example, somebody would commit suicide because they were poor, right? Like that single thing, right? But if you sort of think about it as many factors all kind of bundling together, right? So somebody is 
not having a good life. They don't see hope. And then they impulsively, right, have the opportunity to then, you know, maybe those little things can sort of stack up over time. Yeah, I think I think the the fundamentally suicide is about the perception of options. And 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 as the person's perception of options starts to dwindle, then they're left with nothing. So I think, yeah, poverty is one of those things that closes the door on options for getting your kid in a better school, getting a better apartment, whatever it is. So absolutely, I'm with you on that. And I think we do have to think about suicidal. Suicide is multi-causal. Even if the basket of causes becomes unruly, it's better to know what we're, something of the entirety of what we're dealing with, even if it's a lot. So yeah. That's actually a really interesting way of looking at it, because I think if you believe that, then it opens up a policy discussion maybe around giving people more choices, right? So for example, uh, kids uh, are more likely to commit suicide during uh, the school year than during the summer, which is like horrific. It's terrible when you think about that, right? And um, the part of the solution is would probably be to either make everybody's school, you know, better, uh, more fun, uh, or just to give people more options. I mean, I, you know, can imagine there's many people who are, you know, many young kids who are like stuck in a school and there's a bully who, you know, bullies them every single day and they can't leave because there's nowhere else, you know, for them to go or uh, their parents can't afford private school. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe a, a huge suicide reduction intervention could be something like just giving people more choices about, you know, all kinds of things there forced into whether that's school or career or family matters, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I'd say so. Let me ask you one more question about uh, the, the paper, um, which is, okay, so suicide researchers have basically sort of almost agreed that we're not really doing anything. I shouldn't say they've agreed, but some of them have sort of, you know, been open about, we're not really doing anything that's going to stop suicide. Uh, and, um, I, I don't really know if anybody else is doing anything better. I mean, I, I, I know the government, right, will evaluate some of these programs and things to see if they, you know, does reducing gun deaths in the military or does reducing guns on weekends in the military, you know, reduce this or things like that. But, like, do you see there being any place where there's good suicide research happening or people are thinking more creatively about this at the moment? And could we divert the money there? There are. There are people trying to do experimental kind of research at different schools. Um, I think, though, it's not the majority as far as I understand it. I could be wrong, but as far as I see it, is they're not at all the majority. As far as like thinking creatively about it as, you know, something as other than suicide is people just being lonely or unconnected or sad or, you know, something like that, almost nothing. But I think, honestly, from my perspective, what I've learned writing this paper and why I wanted to share it is I think that, you know, at a certain point, social scientists need to just shut up and just tell about their fucking pronouncements and just start with the failure, like the fact of our failure. And, and the reason why I like that is, it, is it'll get other people thinking about it. I'm not, I do not think that PhDs are smarter than other people in the population necessarily. So, I mean, it would be great to have other smart people inspired by the failure. In other words, here are our highfalutin degrees and our fucking affiliations. And we don't have a clue really, honestly, if we're being real with, we're not sure what's going on here. We need better ideas. It could be random. Suicide could be a truly random event. And that's an interesting conversation to have. Like, how could that be truly random? Meaning unpredictable in principle. Maybe that's true. Just, just level with the population. That's what I think suicide researchers need to do. I think that's what uh, pharmaceutical research needs to do. I think that's what a lot of social sociology and social science needs to do. Just be utterly, brutally transparent about the failure itself. Let's write books about it. Let's have conferences about our failure to, to understand suicide to, to the degree that would satisfy us. Let's just lean into that. I feel like the public... Academics feel like it would ruin our reputation. I feel like it would do absolutely the opposite. And it's coming anyway, because I'm not the only person who could read into these studies and see there's no fucking there there. Right. When I look at the replication crisis in psychology, which has been you know ongoing for some years now, I now see the top research is much higher quality than it was beforehand. And the kind of stuff that gets elevated is much higher quality. But when you look at, you know, are there people still citing those studies? Are, you know, schools still making programs and curriculum based on those like crazy ideas? The answer is yes. So maybe that just speaks to sort of, you know, it's change 
outward change takes much, much longer than internal change. But I, I, I like your idea. I'd like to see that with, I think, almost every social science. Yeah, yeah. Maybe economics gets a pass or something. Oh, I don't know. You don't know. They got their own shit. Well, evolutionary economics is such a small part of economics. And in my opinion, if we're not doing evolutionary, if our thinking is not, if we're not doing our best to root our understanding of human cognition in some sort of evolutionary understanding that relates us to the animal kingdom, we're absolutely, we're completely wasting our time. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's change topics to uh, some of your other work, which I'm just sort of interested to get your, you know, academic opinion on some of these topics and, and how they maybe relate to my interests. So You've written a lot about secularization, I think, a book, right? Very briefly, what is secularization and what has it looked like in the Western world over the past century? Yeah, secularization is just the steady decrease of influence of religion in our everyday lives. So going to church only on holidays versus every Sunday, or going to church only for weddings or funerals instead of every Sunday, or not going to church at all, instead of every Sunday, or not even affiliating with a religion when you're asked by a polar, what is your religious affiliation? You say N-O-N-E, none, uh, instead of going to church every Sunday. So it's this steady increase in people just not caring about religion. Um, you, you can look at this in a lot of ways, like talk to a young person today, uh, how influential is their local church or their church that they grew up in, in determining their occupational choice? You'll, you'll find not at all. What's, what's determining that kid's occupational choice are their media influences that they're watching, the people they care about on TV, parents, peers. Um, church is not involved. And um, so that's what secularization is. As for what's been driving it, holy moly, there are many causes, as there would be with suicide. Rising rates of literacy over the last 500 years are big. You know, you got to remember people couldn't even read their own holy books until pretty recently, historically. They didn't even know what the fuck was in there. They just had to take it on. So people start reading it and they go, ah, this, you know, this doesn't make sense with this. Or how do I interpret that? They start disagreeing, yada, yada. You get a Protestant Reformation. People get more options. Slowly, steadily, people have been empowered, let's say, both economically and, and skill-wise and technologically to criticize the church and to challenge it. And the church has not met those challenges. And so over time, people have just slowly ignored it. It is true to say, though, that uh, most people worldwide, including in the U.S., will tell you they believe in God. So there's a, there, there, there seems to be a sturdy desire to believe in something greater than ourselves. As for whether or not they're Christians, Muslims, Jews, that stuff is going away, the sort of traditional expressions. Right. And if you if you were to sort of disaggregate secularization by socioeconomic status, I mean, what would you see? Because I think traditionally we we tend to think, oh, it's the poor people who are religious and they believe in God, and the rich people are the ones who are, you know, secular hedonistic atheists. Is that true? So there's a guy named Landon Schnabel who's a sociologist. He has an interesting article on this where he studies, you know, is religion the opiate of the masses, as Karl Marx said? Is it especially the downtrodden masses, the oppressed masses? So are more marginalized people in society more likely to be religious? The, this does seem to be true. Um, now, why might this be? I mean, there's many reasons why. Uh, Marx might not have been correct that they're trying to lie to themselves because they hate their lives so much. It could also be that churches often do a lot of outreach services and a lot of volunteer charity that people on the margins take advantage of. And, and of course, they're going to identify to some degree with the people helping them. So it's unclear why that exactly is. As for, you know, outside of that, when we get into the, the you know, the, the middle class, upper middle class, uh, even working class, it seems everybody's becoming more secular. Um, there is a holdout of evangelical Christians who do seem to be upper middle income, uh, mostly in the South and in the Midwest, who are into it. And they're still going to mega churches. And they're doing well financially. They're not particularly formally educated, but they've been successful in business, um, many of them. So, so that's pretty much the landscape right now. But even their, their kids are, are not going to the megachurch as often as the parents are. So even those evangelicals, they're, they're dying out. And with them, um, uh, fundamentalist Christianity seems to be going as well. I guess you could kind of look at it a bit as being a cost-benefit thing, right? So uh, for... A long time, the church, you know, provided not only the kinds of services it provided today in terms of maybe if you're hungry, there's food or giving you a community. But it was also, you know, things like job opportunities, some degree entertainment, uh, a social network that was maybe closer affiliated to your moral values than you would find elsewhere. 
And I suppose over time, as there's more and more options, people sort of more individually find those things elsewhere. And, um, you know, I mean, personally, myself as a, you know, a young person who is interested perhaps in joining a religion, I, I look around and maybe this is me just being picky, but I think we deal with the same way. And I say, well, none of these really seem quite like what I'm interested in. Like they, they either seem to not really be very, very religious, you know, have this kind of hollow shell to them, uh, or they're asking way too much of me. And it's, it's, it's nothing that I personally can really sign on to. Whereas if I'm interested in, you know, having some kind of moral fight, I can go to politics. Or if I'm interested in community, you know, I can go to some hobby or something. And it doesn't seem like we need it all bundled in one place anymore. Totally agree. And it would make no sense to, because we're not going to have a, a core group of friends that's only in one place or another. Now they're going to be distributed from all of them or maybe none of them. So, yeah, I mean, this, the, the, the form of, uh, if we want to say like what kind of religiosity is growing in this current environment, it is this type called syncretism, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. The idea is, is you're just kind of piecing together a quilt of what speaks to you from these religious traditions. So it is religious in a true sense. It's just a, in a, a sort of acknowledgement that, that the truths of religion are to be found in their best and most distilled ways in many different faiths, not just all in one. Like, what would be the chances that one group would get the the sort of the spiritual hunger of humanity exactly correct. So syncretism that does, it does seem it is higher now than it was say 20 or 30 years ago. So maybe that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, initially or before this conversation, I would have said, well, I think eventually the syncretism will collapse back into, because it's only so long people can kind of go on picking and choosing everything. Eventually it's like you have a, it's a market, right? So eventually people come together and say, Hey, like for the, conservative people who like psychedelics this religion and for the you know liberal people who are really into veganism this religion but but maybe it's just, just gotten to the point where there's so much choice that it's going to be really hard to uh to get people interested in committing to one particular you know faith for for lack of a better term i mean i do think when i when i meet people who are very very religious psychologically you know they seem a little bit different than other people um, you know, they tend to be happier, um, obviously very focused on their religion, but I don't know, they seem sort of almost at peace. I mean, do you think if we're speaking evolutionarily, do you think there's been any kind of biological changes in, in people over time that maybe have just made, you know, more people who necessarily don't share those strong evolutionary adaptions for religion have survived? And I don't know, may, maybe in the past, those people who would have been atheists or heretic would have just been killed. And that's also something going on. I think that's a really hard question to answer. The way I tend to think about it, so they're on the on the on the outliers, there are going to be people, you know, let's say for for non-religion it might be people on the autism spectrum who have literal theory of mind deficits that can be measured neurologically. Um yet they're going to be you're always going to have atheists every generation from that sense, people on the spectrum. They're going to have a hard time thinking about the thoughts of other humans around them, let alone imagining the thoughts of a d. I mean, they're just not going to be doing that. Okay, so, and then on the other side, you have people who, who are imagining, you know, almost like schizophrenics, who are imagining minds. All okay, so if we set those outliers aside, so there's always been religious fanatics who were really into it and really believed it, and there are always people who are like, I, I can't follow what the hell y'all are talking about, about this God. Those, but if we look in the middle, most people, most of the time, I tend to think that our cognition is prepared has for, for, for reasons that other writers have described, um, probably for some elements of religious cognition. And I think I could be wrong about this. This is just where I'm thinking now. I think we do keep reproducing it every generation. So if you look at something like communism or Marxism, it, there's almost an agency attributed to history and, and, and the trajectory of history. And humans are just enacting history. And if you read a little bit into Marx, you realize that he is pulling from Hegel. Hegel believed that God and the devil were in battle every generation. Marx is going to put the working class as God. He's going to put the capitalists as devil. It's a religious. And yet, and yet Marx is very anti-Christian, very anti-tradition, all of these things. And so it's almost like when I, I do think even today, this goes for left-wingers and right-wingers and everybody in between. I do think we tend to think, when we think politically, I do think we tend to think religiously. Almost, you know, almost like we have to. Like, how do you think about the poor? 
without creating an abstraction that could be totally divorced from reality. Or when we say things like media is doing this, I mean, how can we characterize all of media doing a specific action on people? We almost have to use religious, fuzzy, uh, highly inaccurate categories that are in battle in our world to explain what's going on. So I, 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 I do think that almost all of culture will always be religious like this, no matter what happens. Yeah, and I, I think you can even apply uh, the framework you gave earlier where there are some people who are so mentalizing they can imagine the thoughts of entities that are knowingly not real. And then there's other people who like have trouble with that. It's very easy to map that debate onto or that concept onto all kinds of political, um, you know, not debates, but ways of thinking, right? So there are some people who will, they'll look at um, uh, what's gone on in the country, whatever you think is wrong. And they think that was caused by one person or one group, right? There's this one group, like world, the World Economic Forum is a great example, right? People get so worked up about the World Economic Forum uh, and they think like Klaus Schwab, right? And they think this one guy, his thoughts, his actions are having these, you know, insane downstream consequences. And then there's other people who are, you know, tend to be very like systematic thinkers or systemic thinkers. And they think like, no, it's not one guy. It's like a million little things happening. Uh, and I think you see that, you know, on the left and the right, both in different forms. Um, but it, yeah, it makes sense how you would kind of like those religious ideals and impulses would get put onto politics. Um, one really good book uh, kind of on this is John Gray's Seven Types of Atheists. Um, he's, a, he's a political philosopher. He used to be at Oxford or LSE, I think. Uh, and he gives seven types of atheists. He gives the, you know, the scientist atheist or the scientism atheists, basically, who think that everything is driven by science and that science will solve all the prog you know, problems. He talks about the progressives. He talks about um, communist Marxists. Etc. So people have a, a great capacity to, uh, you know, as ascribe the things they see around them and historical changes to these very abstract concepts and entities that it really doesn't make sense to. No, Karl Popper made this. Uh, that's about Marxism in particular. He pointed out that and all uh, other political ideologies is that they're unfalsifiable, and this is what they have in common with religion. They're, 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 the claims are never specific enough to test. And um, I, I think that's what gives people comfort in them. They're holistic. They're unfalsifiable. So I think that, I think Karl Popper nailed that. I mean, so I guess if, you know, in a world that is more, that is, that is less religious, is more secular, people still have the same needs they have to fulfill, right? And so we've talked, you know, about the consequences of that for, for politics. Um, now, I think, I think, most people's political engagement, uh, to me, seems pretty limited to the online sphere. I mean, some people like to go to protests and things like that. Although, to be fair, I mean, maybe that is sort of the level of intellectual engagement most people had with their religion beforehand, is they're not necessarily, like, actually participating in it. They're not really asking a lot of questions about it. They're just sort of, you know, observing it from the sideline and identifying with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure that's true. So, I mean, like, religion in the Middle Ages... Basically, if you didn't go to church, you might be a witch. If you didn't go to church, well, what were you doing? So the peer pressure was insane. And so were people really into it and excited to go to church and hear about how dirty and horrible they were and how they deserved their place? I don't know. Probably not. Probably most people weren't that into it. But it's clearly the peer pressure was there. And in, even today in highly religious communities like uh, Mormon communities, uh, oh, the peer pressure is enormous. You know, if you question the Bible, you know, now it's like, is the devil getting to you and, and your parents sit you down and have a conversation? It's, you know, you, you can't dissent. You, 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 you will sacrifice your family and friends if you dissent. I think many, I think many people who are unhappy with sort of the current state of affairs, right? They, they, many people like the idea of going back to, you know, when capital R religion had a more of an influence. Uh, obviously, some of those people are religious people themselves. But I do think there are others who they sort of say, like, politics is very tiring and, and syncretism is tiring, actually, because the truth, the truth is that there are so many conflicting interpretations of reality that when you throw, you know, people into the world and tell them you have to figure it out yourself, it's very overwhelming and it, make, it causes all kinds of conflicts, right? Now, I think uh, since every individual person is quite different, maybe it makes sense for every person to eventually have their kind of own spin on things interpretation. But then that has the problem of, well, then you can't really, uh, 
bond with other people who you know, right? Like if if you take the your you know idea of syncretism seriously, which I think people should, then you could be in a nuclear family and all four family members could have a different religion, right? And I mean, do you think that that has had a negative effect on sort of social cohesion and social bonds? Absolutely. And academics won't tell won't be terribly honest with you about this. Here's why: they're all atheists. They're all liberal atheists, and so the idea that atheism in particular, or, or let's say non-religion, secularization, the idea that that's had negative effects, they don't want to talk about that because it's like talking about something bad that they've associated themselves with. There's so much no- ego, you know? The truth is, I think, yes, I think there is a crisis of community. I do think that. There's no, I'm not terribly negative about social media, really, and the internet. I think these are actually wonderful innovations. But absolutely, without a doubt, we are spending less time outside. Uh, Jean Twenge has great data on this in her new book, Generations, which I highly recommend. Uh, Young kids are spending less time outside. They're spending more time online. Uh, Their sleep quality is worse because they've got a phone in front of their face all night. Um, I do think, you know, if you compare this to 50 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, people are out at parks. Together, kids are out at parks. They're out fucking around outside, uh, having all kinds of adventures, driving around. Kids today are less likely to have a driver's license than any prior generation. Um, I do think there's a crisis of community. I think there's a crisis of connection. I think that's real, and I do think it's a kind of a negative side effect of secularization. Absolutely, I do. Do I think it's going to lead to the end of society? No, I don't think so. But I, I think it's a novel problem of the modern world. Part of what's going on is, uh, I think it's Benedict Anderson, he had the term imagined communities, right? And part of the problem is that for people who grew up online, uh, their imagined communities are just as real, basically, if not in some sense realer, not to be too postmodern, but they're in some sense realer and more important to them than their local communities, right? And sometimes even their friends and family. Um, And I think... We're in a transition stage right now where people have the ability to do very verbal activities with uh, people online and through social media, right? So you can text people, you can FaceTime or Skype or, or well, people don't Skype. You can Zoom with people, uh, you can you know, talk on the phone, you can send pictures and stuff. But you can do very verbal things, but that is not a good substitute for the in-person activities, which I think are just probably physiologically necessary to you know, have good hormones and, and bond and things like that. And so maybe part of the issue is like, we're in this weird stage where we have all these imagined communities, uh, but we're still stuck, you know, in our own little pods. And um, maybe, I mean, maybe part of the solution is to find a compromise where you say like, maybe I can find the people who share my weird niche ideology who are like in my city, hang out with them. Uh I mean, eventually, maybe they'll invent like teleportation. And you can just all be in the same room. I think the metaverse is kind of a, an attempt to do this, right? Like make people feel like they're physically in the same space. But I don't really think that is going to be a real substitute. And I don't know until maybe the tech gets really good or something. But yeah, it sort of seems like we're in this weird mid phase um, with imagined communities. It does. And there is something different that happens when people are face to face is that their bodies synchronize with each other. Heart rate synchronize, breathing rate synchronize. Uh, endocrine releases synchronize um, just uh, everything that makes a body starts to synchronize with the other person. We start anticipating what we're going to say in response to them while we're listening to them. We're physically, physiologically engaged with that other human being. And, and that seems to do things for our mood, our focus, our perception of the passage of time, all these things. But here's how, here's how I look at this. Uh, how, how can I say the internet and the social media are just unmitigated goods, uh, incomprehensibly, unbelievably beautiful goods, and that they're causing a problem? This is how I look at it. Social media and the internet is like introducing heroin to human beings. I mean, it is going to fuck them up for several jobs. Gen- it is wildly addictive. It, you have the world at your fingertips. Markets explode. Um, entrepreneurship opportunities explode, notoriety and fame seeking explode, uh, social comparison with others explodes. So this is going to ravish. That's probably a strong word. It's going to have some notable negative effects on our society. Think about this historically. You know, you're a historian 
a thousand years from now, you're looking back like, holy fuck, the internet was invented in the year 2000. It's been 23 years these animals have had this thing. I mean, it's going to have some negative effects. And, and, and we can mitigate them, we should mitigate them, but I don't necessarily know that the negative effects are long-term. Humans adapt. And if face-to-face engagement uh, really has benefits that computer-mediated engagement just doesn't, even if it's just knowing it's face-to-face, there becomes a thrill just knowing that, you know, it becomes almost exciting in its tabooness or rareness, the pendulum will shift. And people will come to use these technologies in ways that make them happy, not in ways that seem addictive. So I think it's just a matter of acclimation. It's, we're, we're, we're in a period of acclimation to social media and, and still the internet. Um, I don't think these are going to have long-term negative impacts. I think we're going to look back and see this as the beginning of something unimaginably amazing. Yeah, well, I think uh, part of that is we do not really have good norms around like social media use and things like that, right? Um, Russ Roberts from Econ Talk uh, talks about this. He says, like, when you go to somebody's house, you know, for dinner, they don't give you a, say, give you a little bag and say, hey, put your cell phone in this, you know, uh, it's still totally normal to just be on your phone around other real people and things like that. In the same way, I think we have really weird or not weird, but we don't really have norms around online behavior as well. And I think that's uh, something that is maybe more negotiated within certain communities, right? Like the norms on Reddit are different than the norms on TikTok and things like that. And maybe that's appropriate, but um, yeah, in terms of sort of, um, I'm not sure what the term is, but game, good game theoretic norms where it's very, it's very easy to do like the thing that gives you the most maximum pleasure in the moment. But then the problem is then your social connections fade. And so, you know, there's, uh, there's gotta be a bigger kind of view of it. And I mean, in, in, in some sense, you know, a, a big failure of traditional religion is that it has not necessarily adapted well to the digital age. Uh, I mean, in, in some cases, you know, people have done, Put, there's lots of religious content online. People who have done did services online during COVID, but religions don't necessarily give people great advice about how to navigate the internet or uh, anything like that. And I think that's such a huge part of people's lives now that it's kind of missing. Totally agree with you. Religion, traditional religions had an opportunity to adapt with the times for all kinds of things. You name it, from vaccines to abortions to gay marriage to the list goes on to war to the list goes on, and they didn't do it. Why not? That's something to think about. Probably their leadership was too old, to be blunt. They, it, they needed to keep their leadership young and status hungry to, to make themselves relevant, and they just didn't have it. Right. I guess, you know, they might also just have, like, if you, if you truly believe in a religion, you, you tend to believe that the further back you go, the more on the money they were, because they're closer to the original events and things, and not that, you know, religions don't evolve and, and that sort of thing. Um, one one last thing I'd like to ask you about is you you briefly mentioned uh, Gene Twenge's uh, book Generations, and I saw you had a review of it, which I I read before this, and really enjoyed the review because I I haven't read the book, but the thing that sort of stuck out uh, to me the most is you give a very interesting account of individualism that I think explains a lot uh, of sort of you know what she's talking about. Um, so for people who, who don't know, uh, it's G- Generations is just a book that looks at the differences between silent generation and zoom you know boomers gen x millennial zoomers and in terms of their you know behaviors what important events impacted them how they're similar how they're different um but can you talk a little bit about sort of your theory of individualism which is very different than most theories and how that might explain you know why the younger generations seem very different than than the older ones yeah i'm so glad you brought this up thank you for bringing this up um i need to get this in the peer-reviewed research because it's not out there as far as i can tell And it's really, I think it's right. Okay, so right now, collectivism and individualism are seen as two two poles of a spectrum. And and we can characterize cultures with these poles. Collectivists are more group-oriented. They care what their family thinks about who they're going to marry. They care what their family thinks about where they're going to live. They care what their family thinks about what job they should have. They're very embedded in their family, and then they get married young. Group, and they're very, they tend to be religious. Groups, community groups tend to influence their life. On the other hand, 
supposedly cultures are some cultures are more individualistic so the united states is a, is a characteristic example of an individualistic culture in the united states apparently the way social psychologists currently think about it uh people operate independently of groups they decide where they're going to live independently of groups what they're going to eat independently of groups how they're going to live who they're going to marry and so on independent of groups we are sort of emancipated from the oppression of groups in the western world this is the kind of the, the assumption okay so i'm reading her book uh, Twenji's book, and it's great, and she's great, and it's it's making me think about all this. But but her theory is based on this stereotypical, this sort of common normative definition of collectivism, individualism, and so she's seeing ever since 1960s, really from the boomers, baby boomers, uh, Americans have become notably more for her individualistic, meaning group independent. And she has some interesting data demonstrating that people are becoming more narcissistic. Uh, their self-esteem is growing, and these are all supposed to be correlates of higher levels of individualism. Here's what I think. I don't think individualism, I think that that way of looking at individualism is not uh, faithful to any defensible theory of human nature. Humans evolved, and for that matter, primates in general, evolved in very, very small groups. We are big animals. It takes a lot of food to keep us alive. Our babies are extremely vulnerable. We were not solitary hunters living by ourselves. We lived in groups. We are groupish to the extreme. And, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a, that statement is a truism. Just look at the cities we've created compared to other animals. And so I think we need to amend our, our, our conceptualization of collectivism and individualism to, to acknowledge that fact. So what happens, I have no problem with the collectivistic side. I, I think that, yes, in collect, more collectivistic societies, more collectivistic people see themselves as members of groups. Uh, who need to listen to what the group says. I'm fine with that side. The problem I have is the, the individualism side. I think Western academics have been flattering ourselves. I don't see individualism at all when I look at our culture. What I see is people imagining themselves as leaders or representatives or diplomats of the groups they identify with. So in a collectivistic society, people are see themselves as mere members of a group. In, in individualistic societies, what starts to happen is people see themselves as the ambassador or the royal leader of their groups. And what I like about this approach is that it keeps us groupish. It acknowledges that at our core, fundamentally, humans tend toward, not always, some people are extroverted, some people are introverted, but human beings on average tend towards sociality and identifying themselves as members of groups. So if that's true, then individualism is not acting separate from the group. Rather, individualism is a person assuming a leadership role in the groups they identify with. And that's why narcissism is going up. That's why self-esteem is going up. Yeah. I, I love the theory and I think you can look at it, right. And it seems to explain a lot about why it explains, you know, identity politics pretty well. Um, you talk a little bit in the, in the review about how even some mental health things, like the fact that everybody's always talking about how stressed they are. Right. Well, you would be stressed if you were leading the group. And this is actually something you, you often hear from people who are purporting. I mean, they'll say, like, as a member of this group, I can't believe that I always have to deal with this. And but the way they're saying that they're not talking about themselves really as an individual. They're saying, like, I'm standing in for this collective experience. It falls on me. I'm representing it. So, so yeah, I think it's a really clever theory. Um, the one the one thing I might say is I do think you all, you do always have people who they will say, well, like, I am really, I truly am an individual, right? They'll say, like, I really don't listen to any group at all. Uh, I don't care about my race. I don't care about my class. I don't care about, you know, I'm not part of one tribe or another. I am sort of just doing everything from pure first principles, rationality. Like, I, I, I shouldn't say there's a lot of people like that. There's probably not that many people like that. But people are often very proud of, of being this kind of individual, right? Where they're totally unmoored and untethered. And I think a criticism that other people make of those people is, well, like you're sort of in a tribe with those people. Like there's the people like you, you know, people like maybe it's skeptic, you know, those kinds of people. Like you guys are actually your own group. You guys read your own things. You have your own lingo. Like you're not really any different. You just don't realize it. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we can take my case to the extreme and say that even when people truly see themselves as an N of one, they really believe they are unique. You know, maybe they see themselves nevertheless as leading their tribe of one. In other words, their outlook on the world is, I need to make a major change. 
I need to show the world how to really live. Like a lot of these people who see themselves as blazing their own trail, a lot of them are entrepreneurs. You know, they're trying to get other people involved in what they're into. So it's like, we can't get out of this. Like, if I have a conceptualization of the world, I'm either representing a group I can identify or I'm going to find a group that I can identify with by bringing them this truth of how I know how to live. You know? Yeah. And I guess, yeah, in the age of social media, right, it's never been easier to be this person. I think many of us are trying to be this person, trying to lead groups. And I suppose, you know, you could look at that on the one hand and say, like, there's a lot of issues with that. On the other hand, you could be optimistic and you could say, like, well, you know what? Like, there's probably a lot of people who, if they believed they were more important than they are, could actually, you know, punch above their weight and, and do some good stuff. So I guess, yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, uh, I mean, I think individualistic cultures tend to have a good track record on innovation and stuff like that. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, Kevin, uh, this has been a great conversation. Let me just ask you, if people want to read more of your work, uh, where should they go? I don't have any kind of fancy website yet. I got to get that shit together. But you can just put my name into Google and find my Google Scholar. You'll find all my writings. I try to make as many of them as available as possible. And um, I also want to, of course, plug the Skeptic Research Center which uh, I co-direct along with Ananda Said. Um, that's at Skep Research Center on Twitter, S-K-E-P-R-E-S Center, C-E-N-T-E-R. Um, yeah, other than that, this, this has been fun. I enjoyed it. Terrific. All right, well, Kevin, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>